and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we're going to get into it about a dog. We're going we're gonna to fight about a dog. We're not going to fight. This week, we're going to talk about Cujo, a movie so scary that you may have to put it in the freezer. Does that work? <laughs> no, it's from Friends. Jennifer Aniston's character was reading Cujo. Uh-huh. Was it Cujo? She might have been reading it, but oh. Joey says when he was reading Cujo and it got too scary, he put it in the freezer. <laughs> and I find that if I'm scared of a thing, putting it in the freezer can help. Now, our freezer is very full of things. <laughs> so you might have to clean out the freezer to make room for, for more books. You know what really is good is like a, one of those standalone freezers. You oh, can put a whole person in there. Just books. <laughs> I remember Steven books, Spielberg. Humans, movies. He saw, he, he saw Paranormal Activity, the mm-hmm. very first film, and very famously had to call someone to get the DVD out of his house. Out of his house, Because yep. he couldn't sleep with it in his home. Which is wild. He is a movie director and understands how movies are made. <laughs> so what are you doing, Stephen? Before we get into Cujo and Friends, mm-hmm. but mostly Cujo, how was your week? <laughs> well... It's been a complicated and difficult week, Amity. However, I have survived. How was your week? My week is good. Um, By the time this comes out, Mm -hmm. last weekend I got to visit with friends and play a ton of board games, so many board games, and also I went to a casino and I'm sure I did very well. You did very well. I won all of the money. All of it. If you are wondering where the money is, I have it now because I won it last weekend. At the casino. In games of chance. <sighs> this is the secret, right? If you say it. Mm-hmm. This is my version of the McElroy's will be in Trolls too. Amity will win money at Chumash. <laughs> so, you want to get into this animal yes. movie? Okay. okay. So this week, we are talking about Cujo. That's C-U-J-O, a very short name for a very scary movie. For a very big dog. <laughs> Very big dog. This movie came out on August 12th, 1983. Have you seen this film before? I have, and here's um, where it gets a little complicated. I have seen a version of this film before. Was it chopped up for television or something? It was chopped up for television, and also apparently the version that we watched was chopped up too. That is true. That became apparent. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you looked it up because you were like, wait, I remember a thing that is But we can here. discuss that when we do the yes. link. So this movie is directed by Louis Teague, a very skilled but journeyman director, would right. you say? that's the first thing to say. It stars Dee Wallace, later known as Dee Wallace Stone, even though she was already married to Chris Stone at the making of this movie. He's also in it. and Playing her mister. Yes, sort of. One of them. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was written, the screenplay was written by Don Carlos Dunaway and Lauren Courier. And I do think having a woman write this was helpful. Uh, let's do a very, we don't need to go plot by plot because right. a, a lot, but also not a lot happens. <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward thing. So, well, let's read the very shortest version. A rabid St. Bernard traps a mother and her child inside of their car without food or water during a heat wave, and they attempt to survive. Now, 
spoiler alert for the book, the baby dies. <laughs> in the baby? book, he's six or so. Uh-huh. Uh, Danny, right? Right. I Is think he so. Danny in this too? How many Dannys do we he's have? He's actually Danny in this. Maybe he's not Danny. Hold on. Now we got to figure it out. No, he's Tad. Tad. His real name is Danny, and this gets confusing. So, D. Wallace's mom, Danny Pintaro, is boy. This is a very young version of the child who will grow up to be on Who's the Boss. Yeah. Uh, this is his first acting gig. He's precious and adorable. He is so, so cute. I can't stand it. it and I the whole time, was expecting him to be dead at the end of it. In the movie, because this movie isn't The Mist, mm-hmm. the baby doesn't die. Spoiler for The Mist. <laughs> Spoiler for The Mist. Also, y'all, watch The Mist. It's real good. Okay. Not the television series, the film. So, we yes, right, correct, what you said. We have Dee Wallace. Her name is Donna. And she is married to Vic, who is Daniel Hugh Kelly, who I could not have named but have seen in a million things. He's in all of the things. They are married. They seem happy. But guess what? Donna, she's got an itch. She sleeps with their mutual friend. His name is Steve, played by her actual husband, Christopher Stone. (laughs) What do you think is the reason, why do you think that she's decided to sleep with him? Well, I don't know that I picked this up in the movie. Mm-hmm. Steve was her ex-boyfriend from college, or from okay. high school. This is, yeah, this is not something that... It's we, not, yeah. So that, I believe, is, mu- of course, much more fleshed out in the book. Uh, so Steve is her ex. And my guess is she's got this husband who's fine, and this baby, who's adorable. Yes, I understand. He's a, he's a young boy, but still, he's her baby. And I think that she is like, well, my life could have been different if I had done this other thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe she's feeling boxed in. Um, her husband doesn't seem unattentive, and he's very good with the kid, which I appreciated. I was like, well, at least he's not you know, a crap dad or whatever. But there is no why given in the movie. We just kind of find out that they're sleeping together and that they have been for a while. Right. Well, I think that the film is really carefully made. And this is uh, a tribute to Louis Teague, who came on after the original director was let go. Uh, the There's little clues in the movie I think, in the very careful making of this movie, they give you an idea why this is going on. Her husband is a successful ad executive. He who, is. And the ad, there's a subplot, mm-hmm. which I remember from the book, and they do talk about it here in the movie, but the way that it's dealt with in the movie, to me, is wild. But we can get to that in a okay. little bit. Go ahead and... Um, but you see that he's away from home a lot. Yes. You also see that he has to play the part of a successful ad executive, which yes. is his car. And you compare that to the family automobile, which yes. is a wreck. She's driving a Ford Pinto, uh-huh. a yellow Ford Pinto, 
a make of vehicle that did not have like frames around the windows. It was just glass. It was, seems insane to me, but also I think it was probably like a 77. Yeah. <laughs> so it was seatbelts unnecessary, like <laughs> things like that. Um, and he's driving a Jaguar. That's what his car is. And it's a red convertible Jaguar. They live in a home that's far too large for them. The property value of this house is so high. First of all, the house is very large, but it is on the top of a hill at the end of a cul-de-sac overlooking everything. Right. I mean, it's bananas and how much this house must be costing. On the other hand, her young man, you know, uh, Steve, yes, is a guy who is an artist and that appeals to her on some level. He's, is he an artist or like a craftsman? He's a I mean, craftsman, both. But he's can... doing those kind of things. Yes. He's just not like. He's her like husband. a hippie. And also, there's a there's an interesting. We've got a hippie and a yuppie. Where he physically resembles her husband too, and when she breaks off the relationship, she says to because they're both these sort of blonde, athletic. Oh, I, okay. Young I'm men. like she is her husband, or he is her husband, no, but no. I got I got confused. Right. She <laughs> in the, in the context of the story, Donna's husband. Um. They're similar. Minus the beard. Right. They're similar. And I think it's more an issue with loneliness and isolation, the fact that she does spend a lot of time by herself. She does. She is a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. uh, So when her child isn't with her, she's just an at-home mom. And she's running errands. She's doing all of the things to keep this household running. But it's you get a sense she's unfulfilled. Yes. By her existence. This isn't necessarily going to fulfill her either, but... No, but... um, And she realizes that because she breaks off the relationship. She does. Now, in terms of the cut-off scenes on a cable TV print, there's a love scene where the scene starts out focusing on her face, and she looks very unhappy, very sad, like she's on the verge of crying, and then she promptly has an orgasm. As the camera pulls away, you realize that she's on top of her boyfriend. right. Now... To show you what a jerk he is, he immediately pulls aside a trombone that's lying beside the bed. That is where the the scene picks up in this. Right, which the print that we just watched, it picks up right there. So there's this inexplicable scene. Yeah, we're just all of a sudden... They're, They're in bed, in bed together. together, and you're you you. There was mm-hmm. no indication that this was going to happen, and he picks up this trombone, and you're like, "What's going on?" And I didn't even realize. That they were in bed together, in bed together, because she's, first of all, Dee Wallace is wearing the biggest clothes. She looks like a pilgrim, but she's wearing a dress, and then she goes into the next room, and you see her pull on her panties, which was a, like, I was like, damn, (laughs) because I, but but without that scene, I would not have understood what I was looking at. And so I think that it was... Because he was shirtless and in bed, but she was fully dressed, so she could have just been visiting. Well, I think the implication also, again, from a careful director, is that she didn't even have the time to take off all of her clothes. Right. Because the next time she comes to visit Mm -hmm. and she breaks up with him, he's already naked waiting for her. 
That's true. And she, I, he seems like a no pants kind of dude. He yeah. just doesn't well, wear. He's also a no shirt kind of dude. He wanders around without his shirt. But on. that's what I mean. He's not. Uh, I'm not, I'm not no saying pants, he's, no shirt, just, he's Winnie the Pooh or <laughs> Donald Duck or what is like a Porky Pigging it. Um, yeah, just dick out shirt on. No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, I just don't think this man wears clothes. Of dicks, he is one. And yes, he's sort of abusive and controlling as well. Yes. So she cuts it off with him, mm-hmm. and then he. Then goes to their house and uh, basically like cuts up he photos of her the house, right. and then cuts up all of these pillows. So there's well, feathers all over the place. The first but time that he comes to their house, he tries to put the moves on her and she's not having any. That's right. He's dropping off mm-hmm. a th- like a table that he's fixed and then he tries to get her to like kiss him and whatnot. Now, meanwhile... Her son's in the house. Well, he's in the he's upstairs. Think, yeah. No, he's upstairs sleeping. Upstairs, okay. And then her husband could be home at any moment. And she's literally just said, "We're not doing this anymore." Yeah. And he is not he hearing it. He doesn't take no for an answer. And this is when the husband finds out what's going on. Yes. And well, yes. that's handled in a very kind of intelligent way. In which It really is. He looks at her, and I think at that point, Tad is there too. So yeah. he's not going to make a scene. He just says, I just need to know, or you just need to tell me yes or no, something like that. And she says yes. And then he walks away. That's it. That's it's the a admission. Very kind of mature yes. way of dealing with it. Not throwing a, not throwing a tantrum, not But then he's not super mature later because her car's been not doing well. It's doing this chunk 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 thing and it's and he says that he'll take it to get fixed, but he forgets before he has to go out of town. And this is the little bit weird part. So he is a ma- marketing, he's an advertiser, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of his clients is a cereal commercial, or is a cereal company. Their cereal, which I always think of as like the Oops All Berries, mm-hmm. um, Captain Crunch, uh, they have made this professor as, like, the marketing head, like, the head uh, of the advertising uh, campaign. And he's like, nothing wrong here. And then, of course, this is heavily red-dyed number whatever, and people were going to the hospital all over the country complaining of hemorrhaging. It wasn't hemorrhaging. It was the red dye coming up in vomit and other bodily (laughs) secretions. So it looked like these kids were bleeding to death when they weren't. The advertiser, they're the one getting the calls and the complaints, which is wild because it's not their fault that this product is faulty, but it's taken on like they are the ones responsible for this product well, and i'm feels, just like that's not, he feels he bad feels responsible because he says that there are kids all over the country and he's made this sort of friendly professor figure right who's encouraging them to eat the cereal that's fine his attitude right. is fine but he's getting calls from angry people right nobody knows who the advertiser who came up with this ca- campaign is and an advertiser is not beholden to one tests on products that they've yeah. been hired to sell. Like, it's just crazy how much responsibility ends up on him for something that is not his fault. He can feel badly that he has gotten all these kids to eat, but also, you did real good at your job because you got all these kids to eat right, the but cereal. But you can also see how that could impact his career going forward, he and his partner. Why? Because they were responsible. They, it doesn't even necessarily Honestly, have to be that they had any partner, which they didn't. 
it is that oh the ad campaign that was successful that got all these people to eat the food that honestly and, the uh, way advertising works in the United States they will have every tobacco company mm-hmm. at their door they will have everything that may be fucking carcinogenic at their door you could sell a thing that made people think that they were hemorrhaging to death sell my dangerous product. <laughs> yeah, but he's, I think part of what we're supposed to get from this is that he's decent. And that's also what is guilty. I don't know, but then he passive-aggressively doesn't get her car fixed, and it doesn't lead to anything good. I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird thing. Compared to just, what she did, it's a very small thing. It, well, right, but it's also just a bananas thing to think that the advertiser has any control over the product that they're advertising. That's not how advertising uh, works. I can see the way I can see that happening though. Somebody trying to make some sort of public apology, somebody who's not quite responsible trying uh, you know I don't know. To... I don't I don't have any faith in the mm. American advertising companies, I guess. <laughs> I just am like well, maybe no. there's not a reason to have faith in them anymore. There might have been something different at the time. Mad Men took place in the 60s, so I'm going to say as long as there's been advertising, there have been shitbags in advertising. Hi, I've never seen Mad Men, so I might be overstating, but I don't think I am. Also, like I said, tobacco products are marketed. Like, mm-hmm. people market terrible shit all of the time. So, all right. And maybe he's just in the wrong business. So he has to go away on business. He's mm. he's heading out with his buddy Roger. There are two men named Roger in this movie, and I find that offensive. I will say that. I'm like, there are nine people in this movie with title named parts. Mm. Why are two of them named Roger? Was it that way in the book? Um, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Right. They're incidental characters, so don't name two of them the same thing. <laughs> uh uh, oh, okay. Let's get to Cujo. At the very beginning, Cujo is chasing a very cute bunny because he wants to eat him, I think, or kiss him. It's unclear. The bunny goes into a hole. Cujo sticks his head in the hole. What else is in that hole? Oh, no. Bats. And one of the bats bites him on the nose. And that bite gives him rabies. But he doesn't know it. He just knows his nose hurts. Now, tell us what you told uh, told me about the book. The point of view in the book, you get a lot of Cujo's actual point of view. Uh-huh. And it's extremely affecting. I'm going to try and... Okay, so let me read parts of this. All right. Cujo knew who was too old to chase rabbits. He wasn't old, no, not even for a dog, but at five, he was well past his puppyhood when even a butterfly had been enough to set off an arduous trace through the woods and meadows behind the house and barn. He was five, and if he had been a human, he would have been entering the youngest stage of middle age. And then he's chasing this rabbit, and it's fleeing across the thing. He says, but he tried, but he tried hard, and he was gaining on the rabbit again when it dropped into a small hole and then the side of a small and easy hill. The hole was overgrown by long grasses, and Cujo didn't hesitate. He lowered his big, tawny body into a kind of a furry projectile and let his forward motion carry him in, where he promptly stuck like a cork in a bottle. Cujo had stuck at the shoulders. He dug furiously with his back legs to no effect at all. He could have reversed and pulled himself back out, but for now he he still wanted the rabbit. He sensed it was trapped, his for the taking. 
His eyes were not particularly keen. His large body blocked out almost all of the light anyway, and he had no sense of the drop just beyond his front paws. He could smell damp, and he could smell bat guano, both old and fresh. But most important of all, he could smell rabbit, hot and tasty. Dinner is served. His barking roused the bats. They were terrified. Something had invaded their home. They flew en masse towards the exit, squeaking, but their sonar recorded a puzzling and distressing fact. The entrance was no longer there. The predator was where the entrance had been. They wheeled and swooped in darkness, their membranous wings sounding like small pieces of clothing, diapers, perhaps, flapping from a line in a gusty wind. Below them, the rabbit cringed and hoped for the best. The bat slashed and bit at him, slicing open the skin of the dog's sensitive muzzle in a long, curving wound that was shaped like a question mark. A moment later, it went skittering and cartwheeling down the limestone slope, already dying, but the damage had been done. A bite from a rabid animal is the most serious story on the head, for rabies is a disease of the central nervous system. Dogs, more susceptible than their human masters, cannot even hope for complete protection from the inactivated virus vaccine, which every veterinarian administers, and Cujo had never had a single rabies shot in his life. Not knowing this, but knowing that the unseen thing he had bitten had tasted foul and horrible, Cujo decided the game was not worth the candle. With a tremendous yank of his shoulders, he pulled himself out of the hole, causing a little, little avalanche of dirt. And then, so, is it so that's the, how he got. Is it uh, like Jack London, for instance? What do you mean? In Call of the Wild or something, where you're following a non-human character and their sort of adventures are... There's... Little pieces of it. All right. It goes back and... Like, that... It's not... It's told from the third person mm-hmm. throughout. So the third person just is sometimes Cujo. Okay. <laughs> sometimes not. But there are, you know, all the stuff about the human characters uh-huh. is done just like a regular. It's not... Do we ever get the human characters from Cujo's point of view? Yeah, I'm looking. Cujo lay on the floor of the garage in semi-gloom. It was hot in here, but it was even worse outside, and the daylight outside was too bright. It never had been before. In fact, he had never even really noticed the quality of light before. But he was noticing now. Cujo's head hurt. His muscles hurt. The bright light made his eyes hurt. He was hot, and his muscles still ached where, the, where he had been scratched. Ached and festered. And then the man was gone somewhere, and the man is all in caps. Mm -hmm. Not long after he left, the boy and the woman had gone somewhere, leaving him alone. The boy and the woman are both also in in all Mm -hmm. caps. The boy had put out a big dish of food for Cujo, and Cujo had eaten a little bit. The food made him feel worse instead of better, and he left the rest of it alone. Now there was the growl of a truck turning into the driveway. Cujo got up and went to the barn door, knowing already it was a stranger. He knew the sound of both the man's truck and the family car. He stood in the doorway, head poking out into the bright glare that hurt his eyes. The truck backed up in the driveway and then stopped. Two men got down from the cab and came around the back. The rattling, banging noise hurt Cujo's ears. He whined and retreated back to the comforting gloom. Uh, So it goes, and he just keeps getting worse mm-hmm. like it just his pains keeps getting worse so in the book you don't hate this animal because he's clearly suffering Cujo's owner is the guy that fixes the family car right he lives up 
sort of in a secluded, a little bit of a secluded area, and you go there to get your car fixed. He's got his little garage there, and he takes care of it. He, his name's Joe. His son's name is Brett. I don't remember what his wife's name is. Uh, so here, um, as Brett is about to leave, he's gone to look for Kudrow. Mm-hmm. We have Kudrow looked at the boy, not recognize him, and not recognizing him anymore. Not his looks, not the shadings of his clothes. He could not precisely see colors, at least as human beings understand them. Not his scent. What he saw was a monster on two legs. Kudrow was sick, and all things appeared monstrous to him now. His head clanged dully with murder. He wanted to bite and rip and tear. Part of him saw a cloudy image of him springing at the boy, bringing him down, parting the flesh with bone, drinking blood as it still pulsed, driven by a dying heart. Then the monstrous figure spoke, and Cujo recognized his voice. It was the boy, the boy, and the boy had never done him any harm. Once he had loved the boy and would have died for him had that been called for. There was enough of that feeling left to hold the image of murder at bay until it grew as murky as the fog around them. It broke up and rejoined the buzzing, clamorous river of his sickness. Cujo, what's wrong, boy? The last of the dog that had been before the bat scratched its nose turned away and the sick and dangerous dog, subverted for the last time, was forced to turn with it. Cujo stumbled away and moved deeper into the fog. Foam splattered from his muzzle into the dirt. He broke into a lumbering run, hoping to outrun the sickness, but it ran with him, buzzing and yammering, making him ache with hatred and murder. He began to roll over and over in the high-timothy grass, snapping at it, his eyes rolling. The world was a crazy sea of smells, he would track each to his source and dismember it. Cujo began to growl again. He found his feet. He slipped deeper into the fog that was even now just beginning to thin. A big dog who weighed just under 200 pounds. And that's where we kind of leave. I think that might be the last time we get Cujo's point of view. Point of view because it's now he's not anymore. He's just... He's, he's just... Okay. Killer instinct. Killer instinct and pain. Like... That that is one thing that he does focus on is that this thing makes you feel shitty, and so you take that out on everything around you. So Cujo is bit at the beginning of the film. Um, That's the opening scene of the film. It's the opening scene. He goes back to his family, and he's you know acting fine. He's got this wound on his nose, mm-hmm. but Tad is introduced to the dog when they're getting the Porsche fixed or the Jaguar fixed, rather, right. uh, not the Pinto, which needs fixing. So they're all up there. Uh, everybody is introduced to this dog, but uh, mom does not feel comfortable with the dog around her son, even though... Well, the dog is monstrous. It's It's enormous. huge. It's yeah. a very big dog. It is a St. Bernard. The breed is kept the same. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I had in my head that they had switched it to a Rottweiler, and I'm glad that they didn't. Um, but yeah, it's a 200-pound dog. And we can see what a 200-pound dog does later because right. it really wreaks a lot of havoc. Uh, and Tad is small. I mean... He's even small by, you know... He's a small child, but he's compared to this dog, it's crazy how little yeah. he looks. So she's uncomfortable with this dog being around her son, but Brett is like, no, he's fine. He loves kids. <coughs> And it seems like he's fine. He he allows Tad to pet him and everything. Uh, the campers 
come on, come into some luck and some un- unluck, some good luck and some bad luck. I was going to ask you about oh, that. Oh, yes. Do you think that she actually has come into some luck, or is this just her leaving her husband? Because I felt that that was oh, the wow. reading of that, is that, oh, I won the lottery, and I need to go away and see my sister. It's like, why would that be your first choice? She wants to go on vacation. Mm-hmm. She buys him a thing. She buys him like a, a winch or something. Yeah. And he's like, we can't afford it. And she's like, I won $5,000 in the lottery. And he's like, when does it come in? Which is mm-hmm. a shitty first question, dickhead. And she's like, in a week or two. Um, and I was nice to you. I got you a present. Now you do me a present mm-hmm. and I want to go visit my, my sister. Now, I had thought that she wanted them all to go, but you were like, no, she no, wants no. to go with she the boy. She wants to go with her son, which to me... Um, Began to feel like I'm trying. This Maybe. is my excuse to get lost and get away. There is no text to indicate that that's true. Yeah, but it might be the subject. But you can see that. I could see that. Because sure. He's th- these the, people. The, the of, relationship right. decisions that every adult is making in this movie are hidden from us. Yes, we are just dropped into. These are the decisions these people are making. Don't worry about why. They've had lives up till now, and they'll have lives after we leave them. Because this whole movie also only takes place in five days? It's, yeah. Or so? I think that I actually prefer it this way. This is kind of like, and I know that you don't like the example, but it's like watching a play. Right. A Pinter play or um, a Mammoth play where you're dropped in the middle of something and you don't know necessarily what's going on. Right. I don't and mind that. you have that. to look through context clues as long as internal logic works with other internal logic mm-hmm. i don't have a problem with that well also we also were the fact that joe and his uh friend i think that's the other roger equally grubby friend yes um they live and that's something that we can see again from the film the uh the, the these are men who spend long hours on porches surrounded by many beers and when they're done drinking the beers, they're definitely shooting holes in the beer cans. Well, no. What I was going to say is the Trentons are wealthy. Mm-hmm. And we see this contrast only in the Trentons wealthy and the people who are fixing the cars, the people who are providing services, are are broke and dirty and... and but I would also say... Not too that kind. The Trentons are wealthy, but they are also wealthy... For a fairly rural area of Maine. That's true. They're not New York wealthy. Because, well, I guess in 1983 or whatever, one, I guess one income could buy you a house like that. It's unfathomable, unfathomable to me now, but that may be the case. But once again, these are, they live... Well, the Cambers live seven miles. We actually get a direct amount yeah. of space. The Cambers live seven miles from the Trentons. That's Vic and Donna. Uh, but the whole area is not... They're probably the most affluent people in this, they, this they town. Are, yeah. They're um, it, um, among the upper echelon, for sure. Um, but it seems like a fairly rural, small town. Once again, we're in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's Portland, even if it's, you know, or Augusta, one of the main cities, these are still lower living, what's the word? Co- lower cost of living yeah. areas. But, and then the, and the people who are 
poorer are markedly so? There, there's a the art direction in this film. Mm-hmm. It gives a. It's very evocative. Did These, you see who the cinematographer was? No, I didn't. It's Jan de Bont. Oh, really? How yes. interesting. So the cinematography was done by the fucking dude the who did Die Hard. Speed. Oh, I forgot not, that he directed Die Hard. Speed. Die Hard was uh, John. Um, he was. John McTiernan. Was the director. Yeah. He was the cinematographer. Oh, he was the cinematographer. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was the director of Speed. That was. Yeah. Yeah. So he, and The Hunt for Red October, Basic mm-hmm. Instinct, he was the cinematographer for those films. I didn't know that he, he's directed, oh, he directed Twister too. Yeah. Twister and Speed are two of legitimately my favorite movies to watch. Those are fun movies. I've never seen Twister. <laughs> oh, we're definitely going to watch it. I think you'll like it. Bill Paxton is great. Okay. And it's got Helen Hunt and she's so beautiful. And also Philip Seymour Hoffman as the rabbit. Uh, that's neither here nor there. So Jan de Bont did the cinematography for this. Okay. Um, and yeah, no, I agree with you. The outside, the, we haven't talked about it yet, but the effects in this movie are right. spectacular. The, this movie, I guess maybe part of it is having not to produce a massive landscape of images. We have these houses. We, we have, have the, yes. living in the houses. Mm-hmm. So there's a great deal of care taken for the world that we see. Yeah. And the visual effects, the makeup, yeah. the dog's makeup, it's the art direction. Eulog- okay, I am a person who has watched the progression of effects from practical to computer animated or computer generated. I can largely tell where effects are being used. It's hard. A lot of times it's harder to tell in practical effects, but mm-hmm. then the movement of things like Harryhausen, mm-hmm. well, I think what he's doing is amazing. Right. The animated look of it takes me out of it a little mm-hmm. bit. I cannot discern effects shots from actual shots in this film. They don't dwell. That's a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. It's quick clips. But I could not tell. I didn't even realize that one of much of what I was seeing of the dog was a man in the dog suit. Well, there's there, which should by no in no way work. There is uh, there are I think four dogs altogether. Mm-hmm. There is a Great Dane in a Saint Bernard costume. There is a That's man right. in a Saint Bernard yes. costume. There are animatronic puppets of the head and neck and upper body. But none of these is done to the none of these is done in such a way as to show what you are only mm-hmm. seeing patches. You're right. only seeing it's corners, very well edited. or it's so quick as to be mm-hmm. a blur. Yeah, and yeah, and the editing is done yeah. in such a way. Like uh-huh. in our last one, we talked about Creep Show, and I, we were talking about how in the last scene mm-hmm. they very. Almost deliberately seems like stop deliberate. on the face of this dummy that they uh, have replaced their actor with. Yeah. So that you know that it's a dummy and it's very clear that it's a dummy. That is not the tack that they take in this film. It seems like it's one mad dog that's definitely gonna kill all yeah. these people. Um yeah. oh. so the campers are the owners of Cujo. Mm-hmm. Vic is going on vacation. On, on, he's, he's supposed to be gone for 10 days. Yeah. 
she has to go get her car fixed because it's the only way she can get around. Because I guess he's driven down to New York. Um, he took he's his car. Or he's driven to an airport or something. Right, but I bet he's driven there. If it's only Maine to New York, that's probably a drive that you make, especially yeah. if you're mad. Now, he's when he's driving out of the driveway, she runs after him and says, it's over. Because he definitely leaves mad. <coughs> but she's trying to mitigate that a little bit. Right. Um, and he doesn't want to talk about it right now. That's fine. Uh, but she ends up taking had uh-huh. with her to go up to the campers to get the car fixed. Now, this movie relies the the the, the theme and the plot of this movie rely heavily on pre-cell phone life. Right. For one, she doesn't call up to make sure that they're there and can see them. He's just there and you just go apparently. And she does not have a phone with her to call for help. No. She goes up there and Mrs. Camber and her son have gone away to visit her sister. Mr. Camber has gone. He was supposed to go hang out with his buddy who has been killed by Cujo. He's had his neck ripped out. Yes. And then is come upon, upon by Cujo and is killed by Cujo. So Cujo kills his owner and his owner's friend. That's where we're at. With deaths, the right? Count, right? That's yeah. the body count. Um, they don't know this, of course. They get up to the house. There's nobody around, but the dog is there, and he is at this point foaming, bloody, matted. He looks very much greasy. like a rabbit dog now. He's clear. Clearly, there's something wrong with this animal, uh, and he runs at them. They get in the car, and they're stuck inside this mm. car now. In a open area, sun is beating down on them, and the car won't start. And they're stuck in there. And then it's the remainder of the film is them being stuck in this car. They try and turn it over. It starts once she gets it turned around. Mm-hmm. She looks out the window. She says, fuck you, dog. And then the car dies. <laughs> and I'm like, you should not count your chickens. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tad is prone to seizures, but I think they're heat stroke related, right? Like, yeah, at this point, she, he's dehydrated. He's dehydrated. So they had a bottle, uh, like a thermos of water, but they are, end up being there you know, most of one day, all night, and at least most of the following right. day. And they see a police officer. A police officer finally comes. So Vic decides to leave his business early because he cannot get a hold of Steve. Mm-hmm. And he cannot get a hold of his wife. And he just tells his partner, look, she just told me that this was over, but I cannot get a hold of either of them. I need to go back. Yeah. So whether he thinks he's gonna catch them, or he thinks he something to be wrong, genuinely concerned. Maybe like he, I, which which actually makes sense because during this time that that Donna and Tad mm-hmm. are up at the uh, uh, trapped, right? Steve has come into their house, broken into their house, yes, and vandalized it, cut up pictures of her, mm-hmm. like it's banana, it's stalker crazy. Hope this man doesn't mm-hmm. have a gun behavior, right? <laughs> like right. it's 
clearly could be the beginnings of something considerably. Well, he believes that they've been kidnapped. And so that Vic is like, he, Steve did this. Steve did this 100%. And they're like, well, where's your wife's car? If he, she was kidnapped, they were kidnapped. Where's his car? And she said, he's like, well, she had to take it up to campers. Mm -hmm. Because it was, there was something wrong with him, whatever it was. Well, it was stopping and starting and having a No, he says exactly what it is and I, whatever. I don't know cars, so. Uh, and he, uh, they send a, a police officer mm-hmm. up to take a look around, who is terrible at his job. So he sees the car, and at this point, the dog has run at the side of at the driver's side door, bashed his head into it. Right, he's using hard his own enough head as a to have dislodged the handle from the inside mm-hmm. like he broke off the handle right uh, it's also all dented so it doesn't open uh he's broken a window into the house because the phone was ringing and he was he so he's, he's attacking the house man. and he's yeah extremely noise sensitive so you come upon this car that there's no outer handle because he also ripped off one of the handles with his teeth mm-hmm. there's blood smears on it the windows have all got you know, rabies foam, like mushed all over them. And like dirt, they're, they're dirty and yeah. And so you see this vehicle in the middle. Now the two inhabitants of this vehicle are asleep. They're both laying down and sleeping because it is, you know, inside of a vehicle whose windows you can't roll down. Right. 120, 130 degrees. Like it gets hot yeah. in those cars. And so they're sleeping. So they're not visible to the, Driver, he doesn't stop near them to look in. That would be my move. I'd move. I'd drive up to the mm-hmm. the driver's side. And oh, you're talking and about the it. officer at this yes. point. Yes. Okay. So, but he pulls over to by where the sort of barn and garage are and gets out, aways from mm-hmm. the vehicle in question, and he's looking around. And then, of course, he is accosted by the dog. That his gun is knocked out of his hand. And the dog proceeds to kill him. Well, the dog chases him or trees him, essentially, and then yeah. he falls and, hurt, and dies. And dies. So by the time that... And D, mm-hmm. or, uh, Donna has woken up and is trying to get a te- their, his attention, but yeah. he's otherwise <laughs> occupied by this dog. Well, this, what I like about the film here is it reminds me of like a version of the game that you play where you walk in all the furniture. Oh, the ground is lava. Yeah. Right. It's one of those things where there's people trapped in this very small island. Mm -hmm. And there's this creature running around there. Now, Mm -hmm. something that we didn't talk about was that early in the film, the opening images, as a matter of fact, for people in the film, not for the dog, Mm -hmm. is Tad terrified of turning out the light and getting to bed. Yes. Because he's afraid of a monster in his closet. Monster in his closet. And so this theme carries on because he's... Saying there's a this is the monster that this was This is the monster that was my closet. closet. How did it get out of my closet? And Why the, is it here their now? Dad, you know, the poor cuckold dad. <laughs> um he had a sort of like a He's got a like a mantra. A prayer or a mantra yeah. right, that he recites. The monster words. Right. The monster mm-hmm. words to, to repel the monster. And this is kind of what really makes the relationship between the dad and the kid very yes. sweet. And he's given him these that mom can say because he right. says well, mom doesn't know the words. How's she going to keep the monster out? 
And he says, well, I only know them because they were written in a book. I will write them down for you, and then Mom can save them. And so he's got them with them, and they are reading them in the the car. But I'm like, every time you recite this again and this dog is still here, these words get weaker and weaker. (laughs) What I like about that part of the film, this whole, this is the central part of the movie. Yeah. And it works for me better than a film like Jaws, for instance, because this creature is very familiar and at the same mm-hmm. time very wrong. It's hideous. Yes. At this point, it resembles a bear more than a dog anyhow. Um, but, uh, and again, the makeup work and everything work really well to suggest this is a really big, yes. powerful, monstrous animal. You do get the sense that it's it doesn't want to do what it's doing. Right. And the dog is, that scene where the dog is repeatedly running its head into the door, trying to knock the door in, is such yes. a senseless thing. And instead of just focusing on how scary it is, there's additional shots of it, like, lying down on the ground, shaking its head and trying to get back right. and doing it again. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it doesn't even know why it's doing right. this. This this is puzzling to it. And it's doing it while the car, like, the phone is uh-huh. ringing. It, it doesn't go towards the phone, it mm-hmm. just goes towards whatever's in front of it. And also the makeup with uh, for Dee Wallace, the attack makeup, because the animal at one point has broken inside and pushes her inside the car and is yes, basically and is on her. her. She's got a bite on her leg. Mm-hmm. Um, or, yeah, I think a it's bite on her, her thigh, leg. And on then her thigh. there's like all these scratches and things on her face because she's just... And been, she's also, they're making uh, her paler... And more, more wands mm-hmm. because, of, yeah, because so she's dehydrated and sort still of, sweating because right. it's 130 degrees or whatever. It's this sort of one-person battle. Here's a mom who has, and the, you know, eye-in-the-sky judgment of what she's done in that she's been unfaithful to her really decent husband. Yeah. And sort of broken up her family, almost, we don't and, know that um, yet, but... And then she's now getting this sort of, like, Old Testament judgment on yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. So she's getting this judgment, and the judgment comes in the form of this, like, monster yeah. that is the monster from her kid's nightmares. Right. Uh, so there's a lot It's there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. I feel there's a lot going on in this film. There's a lot of unspoken. It's very literary. It's more literary than you think because... Just looking at the plot, you think it's kind of slight. Oh, they're just trapping the car. Yeah, but it's not. No, there's yeah. a lot going on. And so she get finally, Tad is really not doing well. He's mm-hmm. seizing. It's clear that he's going to die if she doesn't do something. And she gets out of the car and she gets grabs a, there's a baseball bat mm-hmm. a, a little bit of ways away from her. She gets that and she... It fends him off successfully until hitting him, she breaks the bat. Right. And which I don't think that was a faulty bat. I think that that leads no, no. to how strong this animal That's is and how much she's fighting. Skull as well, right. And he lunges at her and she stabs him in the chest, basically, with the splintered end of the bat. Right. And it seems like the dog is dead. And she. It, it lands on her, so she pushes uh-huh. it off of her. And this dog weighs more than she does. Right. Uh, and she runs and gets Tad out of the car and carries him up into the house and starts and puts him down on the table mm-hmm. and starts pouring water, you know, into his mouth and over his body to try and cool him down because he's 
got heat stroke. Yeah. And uh, at the at the same time, uh, Vic is you know still with the police who are still skeptical as hell. Like, well, she probably just left you. And we did talk to Steve, and he did admit to breaking in and doing this, but he doesn't have her. He doesn't know where right. she is. And then, um, they said, you know, he says, well, what's what happened up at Camber's? And they're like, oh, well, we haven't heard back from the cop that went up there, but I'm sure he's just picking up another call and he'll yeah. get back to us. At which point he's like, we gotta go. Anyway. They are so used to the kind of quiet life in this right. community that they don't think twice about the kind of danger that any of them could be in. Right. And so he is like, no, we have to go up there because something's right. wrong. And he books it up there in his little car. And all I could think was, you should get a car with a roof. This, this really is... is <laughs> You're um, basically driving a bathtub. A good argument for car safety. Yes. I think, having a covered car. Mm-hmm. Also, I want to keep like three gallons of water and a bunch of granola yeah. bars in my vehicle from now on. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. Um and he gets up there and uh, goes into the house, and she's trying to revive Tad, and he starts reviving, at which point we hear crashing, and the fucking Cujo is up again, and D. Wallace is like, not today, death, and then shoots him, and that with the because she had gone and right. sa- and gotten the the pistol that the, was poli- by the police officer's gun, and then she shoots Cujo dead. Oh, I guess after that is when Vic arrives. I thought he was already there. Now, I can easily see that with... And Tad lives. In the book, that's when Tad dies. <laughs> that you could cut the end of that out. That you could alter the ending very easily. There's one cut where she's walking out with him and he's sort of flopping around in her arms and you're not really sure of Tad's That's true. Again. The way that it ends is them coming out of the mm-hmm. house and, and Tad doesn't isn't awake. He's, He's not unconscious. Yeah. So he could be dead. Right. And I think But you've that, seen him <gasps> right. on the on I think the that table. There was I have the feeling, and this might not be the case, if there was a test audience. Yeah, yeah, that's now. very possible. That's very possible. <laughs> they were just like, Mm-mm. No, we're not gonna see a kid. Please die. don't make me watch sit sit through this to watch a child die. It was too intense to yeah. to get to that point Which where like, I, oh, the kid dies. I understand. The dog played Cujo. His name is Mo. So overall, how did you feel about the movie? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I had not, I don't think, seen the whole movie all the way through. I think I'd seen bits and pieces. Uh And I've read the book. I was extraordinarily surprised watching it that I could And I was watching it with an eye for where are the cuts, where's the Mm -hmm. movie magic. And I didn't see it. And y'all, I don't recommend watching a movie with an eye towards where's the cuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the thing is, in the defense of Ray Harryhausen, um, I think the kind of film that he was making was he the animation. He said to himself, "It's never meant to be realistic. It's meant to be surreal and weird." And so it's sort of odd that it, it takes you out of it. It's supposed to, to a certain extent. But I think the point in this movie was trying to make it as realistic as possible, to where you forgot what you were watching. You were just sort of in horror. You're just like, how are they going to get out of it? Yeah. Because at some point, this animal will succumb to the disease that it has. Mm -hmm. But also at some point, these humans are going to die in this car. Yes, they're going to succumb to the heat. And now are we just going to wait and see 
who can make it longest. And if, you know, if mom had been by herself, she could have outlived that dog. Probably. But a child can't, doesn't have the constitution to do that. I think also there's a very powerful image or the, 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 um, the performance, and maybe that's the best place to introduce it now. That discussion, Dee Wallace is amazing in this movie. She yes. is absolutely amazing. She goes through an, a full range of emotions, of feelings, of, like we said, the love scene earlier, where with guilt and shame and anger and self-loathing. And she, all of this is written on her face. I think she was a very underrated actress. Yeah, um, and Stephen King thinks that she was robbed for an Academy Award nomination for this. I can believe that. Now, critically, the movie sort of was all over the place. Uh-huh. So Gene Siskel gave it one star of four, calling it one of the dumbest, flimsiest excuses for a movie I have ever seen, which is it's ridiculous bullshit. The Leonard Malton gave it three out of four stars, calling it genuinely frightening. Also writing, building slowly but surely to its terrifying but not gory climax. I don't know if that was a, like a disclaimer so that... I'm not sure what film they were watching because this was very gory. I don't agree with that. I You don't... Well... There is a shot earlier in the film... Given the other movies that I've seen out. recently... Okay, so yeah. that, that, that was But not gory climax. Which is, which is true. You don't um, see the woman shoot the dog. That's the other thing is... This is a movie where a dog is going to die. You know going in that a dog is going to die. If you have a problem with movies where a dog is going to die, this is not the movie for you. Because by the end of it, you're going to want the dog to die. Because it's it's not Cujo anymore. It's not a dog anymore. It's just it's the monster from the blind rage and pain. And nothing should have to live as nothing but blind rage and pain. Mm -hmm. You're kind of hoping that this thing dies because it's mis like it's a living thing that isn't a living thing it's anymore. Suffering, right. Yeah. It's just like yes, yeah, sentient suffering and that's not how you and it's never coming back. You can't yeah. you don't come back from that. Rabies is a genuinely terrifying disease. It's got a hundred percent mortality rate. Yeah. If it gets far enough along in you, that's that's all, folks, because there's a vaccine, but if you don't get the vaccine soon enough, you're going to die 100% of the time. Not 99%, 100% of the time. And it's going to be real fucking bad. So, ugh. yeah, rabies itself is, like, terrifying to me. What did you think of it? I really, as I told you earlier, I yeah. talked to them. If there's a, a lot more going on in the film. Like mm-hmm. I said, it might seem slight at some point. You're watching it going, okay, this is just all the movie's about. But it turns out there's a lot more to be said about the morality of the characters and what they did and what they've done and and who feels responsible. The husband feels responsible for something that really isn't his fault. The wife is trying to deny something that really is her fault. She, who bears the guilt for them being stuck out there in the car? Is it the husband bearing the guilt? Because... He because um, he didn't get the car checked right, when he, he said he was the car checked, or is it like they can't settle their issue because he really has to provide for the lifestyle that they're all accustomed right, to now? Right. So yeah. He has no. To go it's, and deal with this, and and then there's the there are all these self. layers without 
a lot of exposition to, exactly. let, to give and it. And I think maybe that's why Gene Siskel was so confused by it. It's like, well, it seems very simple, but it's not. It's actually very complex. And when you look at this film, a, a distance from it, it might be, and I can understand that at the time, there was a lot of uh, sort of backlash against the number of Stephen King movies everyone was seeing. And that got even worse as, as time went on. Mm-hmm. That there was just sort of this glut of Stephen King movies. I remember watching Siskel and Ebert reviewing a movie saying, well, if you don't like Cat's Eye, don't worry, next week there'll be another Stephen King movie. They're not wrong. Right. There was a period when <laughs> some, you know, I, I think I told you, I think it was De Laurentiis just bought all of his all material of and started And making, we're getting into that. Right. Um, that glut. So we, next week we're doing what? The Dead Zone. The Dead Zone. So we're going again. George Romero, Stanley Kubrick, Brian De Palma, David Cronenberg, right? And yeah. now we're going to go other guy. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be the same level of quality. It's not going to be the same level of director. So um, so we have Carrie was 76. Mm-hmm. Salem's Lot was 79 on television. Right. The Shining was 80. Tobe Hooper, I forgot that. Creepshow was 82. And then we've got three and 83. Cujo's the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, then The Dead Zone. Then Christine. And then there's two and 84, two and 85, two and 86, two and 87. 1988? Not a Stephen King movie oh, wow. to be found. One in eighty nine, three in ninety, wow. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, yeah, and there these are, are theatrical s- releases or the television. Oh, that's all together, right? All the ones I just said, other mm-hmm. than Salem's Lot, are all theatrical okay. releases. The next time we get a television thing is nineteen ninety. With it, yeah. it's Salem's Lot and it. And then we're going to wind up with just odd ones like the Langoliers and. There's a couple I've never seen before. Um, there was, what was the film with Jimmy Smits? Is that the Tommyknockers? Yeah, the Tommyknockers, where he admitted that... That is a TV thing. This was basically the largely is a, TV thing. a film that was, that was a basically largely a story that was lifted from a Hammer film. <laughs> and it's like, just run with it, going, I don't have any ideas, but they want a book, so here you go. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So, yeah, so The Dead Zone is next. Mm -hmm. With Christopher Walken, before Christopher Walken was hired to be Christopher Walken. And David Cronenberg. And David Cronenberg is the director. And there's, I think, there's no... Which is, I don't know that I've seen the movie. I watched the TV show, Uh but I don't remember if I've seen the movie. If I have, it was a long time ago. I didn't watch the TV show. I, I thought the movie was really very good. This is really distinctly not, doesn't feel David Cronenberg. Oh, okay. It feels Cronenberg in the idea that he has a fondness for cold and ice. Oh, really? Just a feeling of ice. Okay. A feel of, of, when you're watching a David Cronenberg film, you're not filled with warm and fuzzy characters who you want to revisit ever again. Uh, So there's that that sort of glacial feeling, whether it's the setting, the snowy setting, or whether it's the actual emotional frostiness of the characters. Try to and this is going to be a Dino De Laurentiis yeah. thing. I think the only film that Cronenberg did where you feel for the characters really is The Fly, 
uh, where you sort of feel the, the horror of the characters and what's happening to them and happening to their relationship and happening to their bodies. So I, I won't feel anything for... I don't know. You do feel something for... Well, let's yeah. Let's we, not. Let's, let's not, not speculate. Let's That's silly it. to do. So we're going to watch this probably on Amazon. We've been having to rent them. We're having a great deal of success with Amazon. Well, yeah, we're finding them, but we're paying for them. Mm-hmm. So be aware that unless you own this DVD... As far as I know, it's rentable uh, yeah. on it's rentable on all the major things, iTunes and you know all that good stuff too. Uh, but yes, so Dead Dead Zone, nineteen eighty three, Chris Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen, Colleen Dewhurst. Yes, this will be probably the youngest I've ever seen her, so that's going to be interesting. Uh, maybe that's not true. Maybe it is. I can't think of a place where you see her younger. Uh, Marilla. <laughs> yes, that's that's after this, right? Right. Okay. In the meantime, do you have anything you would like to recommend? I would like to recommend a film I saw this weekend. Although when this comes out, it'll be a couple weekends. A couple back. weekends ago. Uh, that's not for everybody. It's for everyone. It's mm, John <laughs> Wick Three. Parabellum. Parabellum. I saw the first John Wick movie years ago. And I saw it... 2010. Yeah, and I think we we saw it in the theater. And I don't remember what actually inspired me to see it other than that the film was directed by... I don't think it was right. I don't think it was 2010. 2014. 2014. It was directed by a uh, stuntman and people who'd worked in the, stu- the stunt Chad industry. Chad Zaleski. And... Um, he has directed all three of them. I was warned to see it because it had very good martial arts to it, very good martial arts action sequences. Often when you see these things in uh, in the movies, they kind of do this sort of um, weird choreography where they'll mix everything together. You're not watching a specific style of martial arts, you're watching people doing Korean kicks and... Chinese hand movements and whatever else. They're and, all mis- mixed martial right. artists for no reason. And this film does have, but it's very Japanese. It's central. It's like you. there's a consistency in the movements and the techniques. It's stuff that, um, it was really fun to watch it with that first film. This third film has some amazing scenes in it, uh, notably some action scenes with Mark Dacascos, who is eating all of the scenery. It's right. tasty and delicious. He's wonderful in this movie. He's an oddball actor. And every once in a while, he'll do a thing like Crying Freeman or Brotherhood of the Wolf, where you're aware that he's just a really distinct, weird personality. He is. And well, this is another he film. was the chairman in right. Iron Chef. Yeah. That's a weird thing to do. <laughs> well, it's a weird thing to do when your only other resume, things on your resume was either being a stuntman or getting into fights with Jet Li. And then everybody thought he was really related to that other dude because we don't understand how TV works. He's playing a character. Yes. And so it was... (laughs) He's an actor. It was very odd. And he's he's in the film. There's an actor, Yayan Ruyan, I think is how you pronounce his name. I don't know. He's an Indonesian actor. Action actor. Is that Mad Dog? Mad Dog. Yes, from the the raid. raid. And is one of the great, you get to see. I saw him, I was like, is that Mad Dog? (laughs) Yeah, I need to, I was trying to learn his name so I I should learn his name. Because he might beat me up. Yes. But he is definitely going to kill me. Amazing. And there's there's a lot of really well staged stunts. 
My only caveat is the film is incredibly violent. It's extraordinarily violent. The body count in the John Wick movies is very high. Now, what I will say is what I like about them. Mm -hmm. I like a lot of things about these movies. I like a lot of things about these movies. But one of the main things I like about these movies is there is no collateral damage. The people who die in these movies Mm -hmm. are assassins. (laughs) These people signed up to kill other people. So it's fine if they die. You signed up for this. You're trying to get $14 million for killing me. I'm going to go ahead and kill you. Right. That's the rule. Fine. But, oh, is are we in a train station? Are And are these bystanders? We're not going to kill them. Now, the Casco says that what makes John Wick different is that he stops when there are all these kids walking through and his character wouldn't have. I don't know that that's true, though, because in all of the movies, this has been true. They they're professionals and they there's don't kill. one collateral damage death in this in these movies and it is John Wick's puppy in the first episode. Mm-hmm. It's right around the 14 minute mark. If you don't like animal death, skip it. You don't actually see the animal harmed. You just see the aftermath of it. So like people were wanting to watch it the other day in one of my Facebook groups, but they didn't want to watch that part. So they were like you know, skip from like 13 minutes to 16 minutes in to the first movie and you can, you'll miss that whole part. That's the collateral damage in this movie. That's it. And it starts all of this other damage. Right. There's no, um, it, it, uh, technically I think would be science fiction. Yes. It's, or fantasy. Right. Because there's, it exists. It's in like a, it's urban fantasy. I think right. is what it's we would sort of call a it. Separate world mm-hmm. where these there's people, like this assassins uh, underworld. Right. That we uh, get. There are. There's a different currency. There are different rules, but they all are all sort of ruled by what we find out is called the table. Um. In the first movie, you only get tiny glimpses of this, mostly by location. Mm-hmm. And when that movie ended, I was like, you know what I want more of? That that right. weird world. That's really interesting to me. I would like more of that. And in the second movie, you know what they did? They gave me more of that world. They, like, fleshed it out. They gave you, like, history. We got more weird interactions of there's a sommelier, and that's where you go to get your guns. <laughs> like... Uh, and then in this world, they brought sort of those first two together. They've said it's open at the end of this one. John Wick is still alive and shit is still going down. The director has said if people want more, we'll make more. But if they don't, we can be done. I I, I, I really feel bad for... Not bad. But what, a 54-year-old Keanu Reeves having like, to do more like, of these? Here we go. <laughs> Keanu Reeves will only do what Keanu Reeves wants to do because Keanu Reeves is pure and good and wonderful. He's making a Bill and Ted movie as we speak. He's going to be fine regardless. He really likes making these movies, especially when they get let him ride a motorcycle. Uh, but he likes doing the stunts and the action and things. Although he says, I don't do stunts. Uh-huh. I do as much of the action as I can do. Right. And then he steps aside. Now, mind you... Also, he takes off his shirt in this movie, and he looks like a man who has been out of the game for five years. He is not cut and ripped and 
bananas chiseled. I mean, he's in good shape. He's running around and everything. Right. But also, though, you see him move like a man who has been through a ringer. Well, he's which I also yeah. like. There is for as fantasy as the world is, they really do pay attention to certain real world considerations like mm. reloading and things like that. And constantly, like his hair keeps getting like his his hair's the same because all of these movies have taken place in like a week and a half. Yeah, it's a They short pick up time right now. when the previous one ends. So it's a fairly short period of time from the opening of John Wick 1 to the end of John Wick 3. I know I love them. I think that they're so good. Um also, uh, an interesting anecdote that I'll I, uh, mention in passing here is that um, the Chuck Norris movie, A Force of One, from 1979, uh, they lost their original director. And what, did he fall in a hole? Well, he was, <laughs> I just love that phrase. They lost their so director. So the uh, director who replaced him took the role because his nephew, Keanu Reeves, wanted to see an action movie. And that he came by... He stopped by the set, and he had a long conversation with Chuck Norris, who just took mm. time off to sit there, because that's what Chuck Norris is, mm-hmm. does. He sat down and just had a long conversation with him and talked to him about action movies and martial arts and uh-huh. Bruce Lee and everything. And he said to Chuck Norris, mentions, it's like, and then he told me, I want to do a martial arts movie someday. He's like, oh, sure you will. <laughs> sure you, you will. You never know. And so. then he learned... Kung Fu. Oh, right. I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. He had it programmed in him. So here's Chuck the thing, had to too. learn it. You know, I would know. like to apologize to the universe for a thing I've previously said about Keanu Reeves, uh-huh. uh, which was when he was being interviewed about The Matrix, he used the word great like 40 times in a mm-hmm. two-minute period. And I just thought he wasn't very smart. And what I've come to realize in watching his interviews and other things and and reading about mm-hmm. him i think he might be the most introverted person on the planet he just he's extreme he's very well read mm-hmm. he's very smart but off the cuff in an interview type situation or with people that he's right. not comfortable with he's not comfortable yeah and so he reverts to these standard things that he's tra- been trained to say by publicists or whatever. I like he reads a ton. He also does not believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. That's a whole separate issue well, that I'm not going to take very into. Well be the case. Uh, the it's he's like I think I've seen interviews with Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro where they're painfully shy. Yes. They're not making I actors. think it's this. There was a different generation of actors when you were watching an old interview with someone like, let's say Charlton Heston. Uh-huh. Or any of the older actors, they they went through like a charm school for actors. Yes. Especially Which I under think... the studio system. So they knew how to do things. Yes. And I feel bad for actors now who don't have that kind of training. Well, it's not even that. I think that with paparazzi and social media and everything, it's become so intrusive that there is no on and off. Right, but what I mean so is that there was kind a time of, when actors had training on how to deal well, with this. I think that these guys do. They have publicists right, and stuff that I work with them, but they just don't have... I, I've watched, though, times, like particularly the Junket for the Avengers, mm-hmm. watching Robert Downey Jr. just take a hit and like not being able to recover. And I think that 
there's two things going on. There's such a large international market. They're being basically staging interviews one after the other. Oh, yeah. Those those junkets that um, you're seeing, they're literally seeing 40, 50 people before they take a break. But they're also, there's not, and again... It's, and it's the same questions right. over and over again. Not like that uh, I'm ever supporting the studio system because it broke a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that they would run interference for you a lot of the time. I yeah, feel like no, a lot they, of actors they nowadays, they're just on their own. You're expected to just be on 24-7. I right. don't think that's fair. Um, I also don't think that an actor's job should necessarily be to sell the product mm -hmm. that they're in. Yeah. Uh, for some, yes, if that's mm -hmm. what you're good at. But a lot of actors are not good at yeah, that. No. They signed up to be actors because they don't, they want to be other people. Well, so don't was, make them be themselves. That was the old standard. There were actors and there were movie stars. Right. And so somebody like... And I, I think that that might still be the case. The good example, or a good example of Noel Hollywood was the difference between Spencer Tracy and uh, Clark Gable. And they were friends. And Spencer Tracy calls Clark Gable the king of Hollywood. Now, no one... Clark Gable played the game. Right. No one necessarily respected him as an actor, they respected him as a movie star because he kept right. it going for such a long time. Right. Spencer Tracy, on the other hand, whenever you wanted to like have an actor. Right. But I, I think that that's still happening, but uh -huh. there, everybody is expected to be all of the things. Yeah. And that's just not realistic to how people are. But so I once yeah. thought he was dumb. I have found that that he is not dumb. And also he is extraordinarily generous and mm -hmm. kind and likable and... I, I've always really liked him. Like, right. even when he seems wooden and terrible in a thing, I will still watch him. He I is that is not his very fault. charismatic. This is the fault of the casting director. This is the fault of There are some are... things where I'm like, this wasn't for right. you. Just... Although, I think he's great in Much Ado About Nothing. Right. Well, yeah. And I just don't <laughs> think that Dracula, for instance. Yeah, no, that was it's not like, Just show up in this him. part and do an English accent as best you can and... It's not his, yeah, it's not yeah. his deal. But the, he's great as Neo. Mm -hmm. I think he's obviously great as Ted Theodore Logan. Mm -hmm. Like, that is really funny to me. Uh, I think that it's hilarious that they're doing another one. Like, right. sure, why the fuck not? <laughs> like, you're going to pay me to fucking just goof off for a while? Okay. Um, but he's made some documentaries um, that have been really interesting. Mm -hmm. He's He directed a kung fu movie. I really I Man like him. Tai Chi, I saw it. He was, I, a, it was yeah. a fun movie. I gotta say, I'm a I'm a Keanu Reeves stan, and I'll watch Speed all day, every day. Nah, not all day, every day, but any day. Yeah. Any day you want to watch Speed, let's watch it. It was on PBS the other day, which was wild. I was Ooh. like, what's okay. happening to this country? But also, Followed I'm definitely watching this, and I'm definitely talking along with Dennis Hopper when he says, right. "Women's a madman." <laughs> Dennis Hopper, God bless him. Uh, what a yes. strange guy. Rest in peace. All right. I don't think I have anything to recommend. Uh, all the Keanu Reeves all the time. I That's what I recommend. It's fine. I forgive you. All right. That brings us to the end. We thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, questions, concerns, comments, if you think we're getting it wrong or getting it right, let us know. Uh, it would be awesome if you would uh, leave a review on iTunes. That would be amazing. We've got, I think, two reviews, and it feels very special. I would like more reviews, please. Yum, nom, nom. More review. And you can reach us 
on email at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Latecomers Pod. And I think that's everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next week is The Dead Zone. Uh, It's available on Amazon and other rental, rental streaming services. 1983's movie Dead Zone, not the entire series of the Anthony Michael Hall television show. Which we will not be seeing. We will actually be watching at least one episode of it. One episode. Okay. It just takes way too long. No, we're not gonna watch a whole we're not gonna watch a whole series of a thing. Uh that would really derail us. But we can watch maybe the first episode and the last episode. We'll talk about it. Anyways, I remind you to take your medicine. I say we love you very much, and remember. Better late than never. never.